0: My name is Adam, I'm one of the pastors here at Bethany, and this morning we wrap up our series on money. Uh, we've been talking since Easter morning on the subject of money. We've been dealing with uh, the reality that Jesus talks about money more than he does heaven and hell, and the reality that money, at the end of the day, really reveals a lot about who I am and what I do with it uh, reveals a lot about who I am, where my heart is. Jesus talks about money so much because Jesus is concerned. He wants our hearts. He says, you can't have two masters, and I want all of you all the time. By the time we end this morning, and hopefully we ended this series, the thing that my prayer has been as a pastor that we leave this place with is the understanding that when I understand, when I really grasp how rich I am in Jesus, meaning I understand what it means to be a Christian is not that I'm a bad person that becomes good, but I'm a dead person that came to life, and I've been adopted into his family. When I'm adopted into his family, I'm an heir of all of his riches, his spiritual riches. And when I begin to seek and to live there first, seek the kingdom of God, this stuff takes on a whole new form. Now, the real heart this morning is that we leave. My heart is every morning that we leave different than when we came in. My heart is that we leave not just hearing something that makes me feel better because I learned something new or was motivated or encouraged. But that we leave saying, I am going to live different now, tomorrow, tonight, This week, because of who Jesus is and because of what he's meant to me and what I've learned in his word, I walk out of here changed and different. To kind of head us down that road to get us out of here in a different than when we came in, uh, you can turn with me to Luke chapter seven if you'd like. You don't have to. I'm not gonna, maybe it's a passage you wanna go back to and read this week, uh, but I'm not gonna necessarily work through it verse by verse, word by word. I wanna tell you the story of this, just kind of talk through this passage. Luke chapter seven is hands down. Hands down, one of my favorite stories in all of the Bible. I love this story. It's a story that I've preached on multiple times. It's a story I will continue to preach on multiple times. You've heard it here probably a few times since I've been here at Bethany. But Luke chapter 7 is a story about Jesus interacting with some religious people. And it kind of shocks us with what we find. There are two kind of groups of people that form in this story around Jesus. There's the religious people led by a guy by the name of Simon. Simon is the religious leader of this group. It's his home that they've gathered. They are called, what we understand, those of you who grew up with the Bible and understand this, it's, they're Pharisees, they're religious leaders, they're kind of like the pastors of the day. And he has some religious leaders gather in his home. They bring Jesus in. And the real heart of it is Jesus is causing a lot of commotion in The nation of Israel, and so these religious leaders want to know: Okay, is this dude legit? They don't think he is, but they're beginning to question and probe and try and uncover: Is Jesus legit? So they have him in for dinner, and they're going to begin to ask him some questions. I believe is what's in their mind. Now, gathered around these people also are some others that kind of kind of pull into the scene, and there's this one particular individual that stands out, and she's referred to in Luke chapter seven as. The sinful or a sinful woman. That's Dr. Luke, the writer of Luke. It's his way of saying the town prostitute, the town whore. Now, she is uh, a sinful harlot. She is someone who is gets and understands who she is. They, the, the religious leaders, understand who she is. And what you find happen in this story is she begins to come in. She, she gathers at Jesus' feet, and she begins to weep, and she uses her hair, which is kind of interesting because it's probably the symbol, the thing that sets her apart for who she is, recognize. I mean, it's probably this. And she begins to wipe Jesus' feet with her hair bowed down at his feet. Now, the religious leaders led by Simon begin to whisper and they begin to talk and they begin to say, now, guys, look over there. There is no way this guy is who he says he is. There's no way Jesus is a prophet. There is no way he's the son of God, because if he were, he would truly know and understand who is touching him. See, the the assumption is, is that he's a Jewish man. A Jewish man wouldn't want a woman touching his feet, let alone a sinful harlot. So they're looking down with condemnation towards Jesus and this precious lady. Now, Jesus, in the meantime, is over here. And I believe he he understands their heart. And what he does, he does something masterful that I I love watching Jesus interact with people and what he does. He reaches in at Simon's heart. He doesn't just argue with him. He doesn't just step in and say, come on, Simon, I'm the son of God. He steps in to the scene and reaches down into Simon's heart by telling a story. And he tells a a story revolving around money. This series, what subject we're talking about. What he does, he looks over at Simon. He says, Simon, I want to tell you a story about a banker, a money lender. This money lender woke up one morning, Simon, and the money lender was feeling really generous when he got out of bed in the morning. So he says, I'm going to head to work today, and I'm going to go through my roles, and I'm going to find out, I'm going to find two people that owe me money, and I'm going to intentionally call them in, and I'm going to eliminate their debt. So Jesus goes on and tells a story about the two people. One has a real small debt, and one has a huge debt. For sake of discussion, let's say the one comes in, it's a thousand dollar debt. It's probably a small consumer credit card debt as we know it today. It's probably maybe a minimum payment of $10 a month. It's probably not a lot of money. It's not huge. It's not, it's not consuming their life. Sure, this guy who owes them the money would probably like, as any of us has a $1,000 debt, we'd like to end it. We'd like to wipe it out. We'd like to do away with it. So the banker looks at this guy with the, with the small debt and he says, I'm going to wipe this thing off. You're done. You owe me no more money, no more interest, no more money. Now, if you're that guy, that girl, how do you respond? You're happy. No more minimum payment each month. I'm done with this. Now, then the banker goes through his roles and he brings someone in who, for sake of discussion, let's say in our terms, you look at some of the terms there and say, what? how much, let's say it's a million dollar debt. Now, a million dollar debt compared to a a consumer credit card debt of a thousand dollars, a million dollar debt is all consuming If you have a million dollar debt hanging over your head, you're probably considering things like bankruptcy. You're probably considering things like foreclosure. You're probably worried. You probably go to bed sick. You wake up sick. You're constantly consumed with this reality that I owe a lot of money and I don't know how I'm going to get out of this mess. So he calls this guy in and he says, you know what? I woke up this morning. I'm feeling really good. I'm going to wipe out your million dollar debt. Now, if you're that guy, if you're that girl, how do you respond? Isn't there a difference between the two? How you're probably going to see a response. So Jesus looks back at Simon. He's not trying to argue with Simon. What he's going after is Simon's heart. He says, Simon, you need to face some things about who you are. And he looks at him and he says, Simon, tell me which money, which person that had that debt relieved loves and appreciates the money lender more. Now you're asked the question, what would you answer? The million-dollar debt or the thousand-dollar debt? Who's going to be more appreciative of that banker? We know the answer, right? Simon knew the answer. I think he knows. I think he's sitting there. If If I could enter Simon's heart and mind at that time, if I'm sitting there in that position, I think I would be like, oh, crud. He got me again. What am I going to say back to this? How am I going to argue with this? How am I going to prove that he's not the son of God now? Because he just went right down at the levels where I really wish he would stop going. And he looks back at Jesus and he says, well, I suppose it's the million dollar debt. Jesus looks at Simon and and Jesus says, Simon, well done. Great answer. You were on the money. And then he draws the parallel. He says, guess what? From the time I've come into this home... You have not offered me a customary thing that in that day, you come to my home, I'm going to offer you a handshake. Welcome. Come on in. In that day when you came into a home, feet were beat. They were, they were worn. They wore sandals. They were dirty. They, they, it was customary to offer either a servant to wash your feet or you offered some kind of mode to have the, your guest have their feet washed. And Jesus says to Simon, Simon, you didn't even offer me a means to wash my feet. Here's this woman who's not even a part of your household. Here's this woman who you look down on. And here's this woman who from the time I entered, he says, in Luke chapter 7, has not stopped wiping my feet and the dirt on them. And then he delivers the punchline. He hits Simon right between the eyes. He says, Simon, you know the reality is? He who has been forgiven much... What? Loves much. Now, the first time I read this passage, this wrecked me. This just, the first time the Holy Spirit met me in Luke chapter 7, I was like, oh my goodness. This changes the game. This changes the game for me because I look at the church and I look at, I look, I was growing up. I'm a young guy studying to be a pastor. And I realize I look at the church today and I say, are we described as a group of people that just radically, radically loves? I think if we're really honest, we would answer that question with, a eh, we have got some room for growth. And when I really met this for the first time, I said, Adam, am I a person who radically, radically is defined and described by those who know me as a person who loves? "Ah." Talk to my wife, my mom and my dad, now my kids. They may say, "Ah, he's got some room to grow there. So I stop and I say, well, Adam, could it be? That you see yourself as the guy that's only been forgiven a $1,000. Because after all, you're a pretty good dude. You don't have a real big debt. But when I grasp what I've been forgiven, it changes the game. So there are two people in this story. And I think, I don't want to be over simpl- simplistic, but I think generally most of us would fit into one of these two categories. The first one is the sinful woman. I think the thing we understand about the sinful woman is to the very core, to the very fabric of who she is. Deep down inside, she gets and she understands who she is. How do we know? Everyone in town knows it and has been pointing it out to her. Luke records in the Bible. Now for 2,000 years for people to read, she was a sinful woman. She gets it. So I think that's generally the one group of people. There's, a, there's some of us in this room that get who we are. There's some of us in this room that understand the sin that so easily grips your heart. There's some of us in this room that just really get and understand how dark I am inside. I think there's a second group, though. The second group of people are these religious people, Simon and his buddies. And I think what I find with these guys in this story is they have no idea who they really are. The reason they have no idea who they really are, in my opinion, is because they have spent a lot of time and energy trying to prove to everyone else who they are. They put so much emphasis, as Jesus says in other places in the gospels, they have put so much emphasis on looking good outside that they've missed what's inside. And they spend so much time and energy trying to put their best foot forward and making themselves good to you and good to me and constantly stepping out there with their best foot forward saying, I am good, trying to justify themselves and prove that they're good. But I think at the end of the day, they miss and forget about what's really inside of them. I think at the end of the day, they even begin to believe their own story of who they are. Sure, do they know they've got some stuff to deal with? Yeah, it's a thousand-dollar debt. I've got some stuff. Yeah, I tell a lie here and there. Yeah, I get angry once in a while. But come on. To the very core of me, a million-dollar debt? No. I think they soon buy it, they soon live it, and they soon believe it. I think at the end of the day, what ends up happening with these guys that Jesus says at the end of the day, you can't, they can't lavish love on others because they have not received it themselves. Now we're talking about money and this is a money story that Jesus uses here. So I think you could phrase it this way too. At the end of the day, generosity received is generosity given. When I really grasp what I've been given, when I really grasp where I'm at in life, sure, I've worked hard. Sure, I've been disciplined. Sure, I went to college. Sure, I did a lot of good things. But at the end of the day, when we grasp that where I'm at in life today is a result of so many gifts that have been given to me, we turn around and give to others. And when I don't have open hands with my things to give out to others, it's a lot of times because I've missed the reality of who I really am and the position where I really stand. At the end of the day the thing I believe about myself to the very core, the thing I believe about most of you in this room is that you want to experience a rich, meaningful, dynamic, life-giving relationship with God. That's why most of you are here. You didn't get out of bed this morning. Some of you are here because mom and dad made you some are here because your husband or your wife guilted you into it. Some of you are here because it's just what you do on a Sunday morning, but most of you are here because at the end of the day, In some capacity, you believe coming here is going to help you in your walk with God, going to help you at some capacity figure this God thing out. And at some capacity, most of us in this room say, I want to make a really big difference in this world. May not be famous, but I want to have a really good marriage. I want my kids to love Jesus and love me. It's some capacity, I'd really like to overcome this addiction. It's some capacity, I want to see my coworkers love Jesus. It's some capacity, you're coming in here because you're saying, I want to make a difference in the world in which God has planted me. But the reality is at the end of the day, if I'm not honest with who I am, to the very core of me, I will never experience the full grace of God to the level that I really want it and hunger for it. As I think about recovery, as I think about the series, and I think about our nation, we're in recovery. It's interesting as I listen to most of you talk. Most of you tell me that you don't buy it. Most of you turn the news on and you're going to hear something about recovery. We're in recovery. Things are going good. But most of you tell me, I've heard it from a number of you, that really get and understand money, things that I don't fully grasp. Most of you will tell me that we haven't even hit bottom yet. And I think it's interesting to me when I come to think of recovery and think about what we do with our money and how we change our mindset with this, you know what might be good for us to do? Is to take a page from the playbook of the recovery groups, the AAs of the world, Alcoholics Anonymous. They're proven, they're tried, they've done it, they've helped numerous people recover. And it's interesting, one of the, Pages from their playbook says it this way, I'll put it up on a screen for you to grasp and see it for yourself. This is the AA program. Again, not a quote unquote Christian program, but their steps and a lot of ways you can model and they come right out of the pages of scripture in so many ways. But they say in step four, one of the, one of the things that you are going to say, you commit to, to, to the group that you're with walking with. It says we made a searching and look at this word they use fearless. Moral inventory of what? Why is that so important? Doesn't that connect with the woman in Luke chapter 7? She made a fearless moral inventory of herself. And what did she discover when she did it? She's a sinful woman. These religious people, did they ever step into this place where they made a fearless moral inventory of themselves? I think occasionally you find places in scripture, Nicodemus and John chapter three, where they begin to probe at that. But most of the really religious people in that Jesus interacts with never get to the place where they make a searching, searching and fearless moral inventory of themselves. Anyone who has ever recovered from anything was willing first to look in the mirror and stop making excuses. You know, it's interesting with AA, the number of alcoholics that I've worked with in my life. Do you know what's interesting? How many of them say this? I don't have a problem. They're a long way from getting help when they're saying that. I worked with one guy in Mifflin County. I mean, this guy woke up drinking. He went to bed drinking. He beat his wife. He was just, it was atrocious train wreck. He'd look at me in the eyes and say, I don't have a problem with alcohol. I could stop tomorrow. And I'd say, then stop tomorrow. Stop now. But he couldn't because he never got to the place where someone who truly recovers starts by saying, I have a problem. Most alcoholics lie. They're so deceived and they never get to the place where they stop. And I think we can look at alcoholics or we can look at ourselves and say, you know, we're not that different. We have a really hard time. I have a really hard time taking 110% of responsibility for my junk. One thing I think I've learned is you look at our culture today, you look at our young generation, and you look at what they're learning today versus what my grandparents who are passing away have learned. Today's generation is so educated psychologically. They understand the inner child. They understand what dysfunction is. They understand, and they're constantly doing assessments and personality studies, and and they're doing this constant self-evaluation And I think what I've found with that is we do that we become so educated, we begin to use our knowledge to excuse our behavior. Or we use our knowledge to only take partial responsibility. I think in a lot of ways, our generation, my generation, lives with kind of this understanding. If it wasn't for mom who beat me, my dad who left home, my teacher who made fun of me, my friends who abandoned me, If it wasn't for my personality, my, and you fill in the blanks, if it wasn't for, then I wouldn't have. How so many of us live life. And I think at the end of the day, when we live from that place, we never get to the point where we lavish great love on others because we've never been forgiven much when we live from that place. We have, I have a really hard time saying, you know what, Tanya? to my wife when I need to, forgive me because I sinned against you and then going silent. You know what, Luke and Zach, daddy was angry last night and I spoke to you in a way that I should not have spoken and then going silent. As long as I live like this, I'm never going to recover. I'm never going to become generous. I'm never going to know God's full grace and forgiveness. There's a verse in Jeremiah that comes up. The book of Jeremiah in the Old Testament, is a, it's a crazy story. It's a story of a guy, a, a, in essence, a pastor, a prophet, and he's got a tough job. He has a thankless job. You understand right from the start of the book that he's not going to see fruit. He's not going to see results. He's going to stand and preach his guts out, and no one's going to listen. It's a miserable place to live your life. But he stands up and he does it. And what's happened is the nation of Israel at that time has rebelled against God. And God said, I've had enough. We're going to have a period of judgment. And I'm going to come down and we're going to carry you guys off to Babylon. And we're going to wipe this nation out. And you're, it's going to be like that until you get your heart squared around with who I am. Repent. Do the inside work. Do the, do the self-evaluation Now, what begins to happen is this King Nebuchadnezzar, who's the leader of Babylon, puts a puppet king, Jehoiakim, in power in the nation of Israel. Now, Jehoiakim begins to get this big head on his shoulders, and he thinks, you know what? We can do this. I'm going to raise up an army, and we're going to take this nation of Babylon out, and we're going to get our freedom. I'm tired of being a slave. I'm tired of being told what to do. God is great. God is good. He's going to do this for us. Now, Jeremiah comes along and says, listen, dude, don't go there. God wants us right now to suffer and to recognize who he is and to recognize and live in this pain and this mess that we've created so we understand how ugly and atrocious sin is and we stop running to it and we repent and come to a true place and true knowledge of who he is. Now, Jehoiakim mistreats. They they basically call Jeremiah a traitor. They basically say, well, you're one of them, aren't you? You're for Babylon. Come on. Where's your national pride? Stand up and fight with us. And he ends up being abused. He ends up thrown in jail. He ends up whipped. I mean, all this, he is horribly treated. But he continues to preach. Jehoiakim steps out and does what he wants to do. And guess what happens? He's wiped out. Babylon just wipes him out. They put another leader in power. His name is Zedekiah. Zedekiah, again, same exact thing, begins to walk this road. And Jeremiah, again, stands up and says, listen, look what happened to your predecessor. He was taken out. The same thing's going to happen to you. The same thing. Zedekiah says, Jeremiah, you're a traitor. Get on our team or face the penalty. He, again, thrown in jail, beat, slapped. I mean, he is mistreated. He's called a traitor. He says, you have no national pride whatsoever, Jeremiah. Guess what happens to Zedekiah? Wiped out. In the context of that, those two kings doing that, and Jeremiah living, Jeremiah then writes this verse. Most of us know this verse. We don't understand the story behind it. There's a lot of junk behind it that Jeremiah finally says this. Jeremiah sits down and reflects. And he says, the heart, the human heart is, what's the word he picks? The human heart is deceitful above all things. There's nothing more deceitful than the human heart. And then he says this, and I read this and I think, oh, wow. Were you having a really bad day? I mean, did you get off your meds? I mean, come on, dude. Really? Is this really what you think about the human condition? He says, and it is beyond the cure. And then he says this, this profound statement. Who can understand it? Now, when you look up at the word deceit, what is deceit? Do you know why we have a hard time understanding our hearts? Is because we're deceitful people. Do you know what deceit is? It's taking a little bit of truth, turning it just a hair. So it's not full truth anymore, but it's still partially truth. And you kind of give it to your wife or your husband or your kids or your boss as though it's truth. We begin to live life with this half truth reality and it gets really messy and it's hard to sort out in the, in the nation of Israel. They wanted freedom. But they also had to undergo and, and deal with the, the reality of their choices, the reality of them walking away from God. They've got these conflicting realities that spin in their heart, and they begin to cast off these ideas of thinking, God really wants us to be free people. Does God want them to be free people? Absolutely, he does. Does he want it right then and right now? No. No. So they begin to tell themselves and create these stories and they spin the truth and it's deceitful and it spins down deep and it gets us in this horrendous mess and it's horribly hard to understand with and then he comes along and says, who can possibly understand this? Here's how this works very practically in our day-to-day lives. I'll illustrate it first in a very unrelational thing and then I'll illustrate it, I think, (laughs) with how I see it come out in illustration. For my birthday back in February, a year ago, I bought a, my very first smartphone. It was a Blackberry, a Crackberry, or whatever they call those things. Now, that's absolute junk. I wanted to get rid of it. From the time I had it, I'm like, this thing's a joke. Why did whoever invented these things? I always resisted and pushed back against the big Apple. I can't stand these Apple guys. They run around. Apple's the best and Apple's the greatest. So I'm like, well, I don't want an iPhone. I'm just going to go along with the common trend. And I'm going to go and be a business guy. And I'm going to have a Blackberry. And I hated the thing. So my birthday comes around. The contract's back up. And, and my wife says, for your, for your birthday, what would you really like? And I said, well, what I really love is to get rid of this Blackberry and have a new smartphone. So we know we... Budget's tight, and we really, she says, Well, we know what we spend on birthdays, and she's like, Well, that, you know, I don't know if you can really get a new smartphone. So let's go into Verizon and let's see what we can get. So we head on into Verizon, and I had my heart set. I was beginning to come over to the dark side and said, Okay, I'm going to embrace this Apple iPhone 4S or whatever it was. This was this past February. I get there, and I begin to look at the Apple, and I'm thinking, That is a really cool phone. I would like to have that phone. Now, the price tag on the Apple 4S or whatever the the numbers attached to the back of that 4 was a little steeper than what our budget said we could afford for the phone. So I'm sitting here looking at this phone going, (sighs) okay, wisdom says that's not a wise thing to do. So I kind of give that up and I'll keep playing the card of Apple's, you know, for the creative artsy people and I'll continue to be a business guy. And let's go over and look at... The Droid Razor was there, this cool smartphone, brand new at the time. It had just come out really slim, really sleek, has this great, I mean, I'm looking at it. Again, $299 at the time. I can't justify $299 for a phone. But I hold this phone, I look at the phone, I'm like, this phone is awesome. I really want this phone. So finally the salesman goes, well, down here, and they take you over to where they have the the land of the forgotten phones, where it's kind of like this is where we have the... the um, the, the special offers, the buy one, get one freeze and over here is I mean and he and he tries to console me and he tells me how great these phones are and he shows me the phone that I end up buying. It's a Samsung. He tells me how, you know, Samsung's made with the TV, their TV technology. So it's got high def uh, screens on it. And, you know, he shows me the NFL network and how you can watch the NFL network on it. He shows me how the keyboard flips out. So because I got these big fat fingers, I don't need to touch the screen. And I'm like, you know, that's a pretty cool phone. I said, what can you not do in this that you can do in that? He goes, well, pretty much nothing. I mean, what everything that that iPhone does, this one does. I'm like, this one probably does a little more. Okay, that one's in my price range. We'll take it. I take the phone home. Guess what I do? When I see Chris, Chris, it's an awesome phone that I bought. I mean, look at this thing. This thing's got a high def screen on it. I try to make him jealous as I get the NFL network on there and say, Look at this. This is live TV on my phone. This phone is amazing. What am I doing? Funny thing was, I just read a book called grouped and he, and it's a marketing book on, on marketing strategies and principles. And he talks about sociological realities of life. And guess what? He says people do this very thing. We go out and buy something. that's a little less than what we wanted, or maybe we have a little bit of buyer's remorse. or so we really would have rather had that. So what we do, instead of just stopping this deceitful thing, instead of just stopping and saying, Chris, I got a crappy phone. <laughs> what do we do? I'll get this cool phone. Who's that for the benefit of Chris or for me? What am I really doing? I'm deceiving myself. I'm telling myself, I'm trying to get myself to believe that this is a really cool phone. Now I'm thankful for my phone. I don't gripe about my phone. I'm, I'm very appreciative, it's a whole lot better than my blackberry and I live life happy, but how this works in everyday life in relationships I'll make it very practical for me. Maybe I have our bedtime routine with our kids. I don't know what it is about bedtime routine with kids. Those of you young parents out there, I mean, I think we should have a support group. You know, we've got AA for the alcoholics. I think we just need to have a group for parents to try and put their kids to bed on time every night. It is a tough thing to do. And these children have this way of needing a drink and prolonging, prolonging this and playing that and fooling around here. And after a while, it begins to happen in my heart as I start to get a little ticked off. Because I'm like, you know what's going on now? Now it's cutting into daddy time. Now it's taking up time for me where I can spend with your mommy. I mean, you need to get this show in gear here. And what ends up happening is I soon find myself with this great agitation stirring up and soon I'm speaking in ways that is anything but gentle. I'm forceful. I have coercion in my voice. I'm threatening. If you don't then, and I'm, I'm getting heavy handed with my kids. Now, what ends up happening? Here's what we do. Here's what I do. Maybe I won't speak for you. Here's what I do. Oh man, I feel terrible about that. Why did I do that? So I'll go to him. You know what, guys? I blew it. Daddy shouldn't talk to you like that. But you know what, guys? You really got to get to bed on time. What have I done? What I've done is I've not just stopped and looked at Romans chapter 2, for example, that says God parents us. He says, how do we come to repentance? It's because of his kindness and tolerance moving in my direction, not his judgment. So why can't I just stop and say... Adam, you are a sinner. You wronged your children. You should never speak to them like that unless it is a life or death emergency. Period. End of story. Why can't I just go to my kids and say, you know what? Please forgive daddy because daddy spoke in a way that dad should not communicate with their children. Period. End of story. So we do, we don't own it. We make excuses. Well, it's some of them. It's, I mean, come on. I mean, they need, they have stuff they need to deal with. Absolutely. But what happens is I leave that little piece undone and I push it down into my heart. And soon I've got this stuff that builds up in my heart. And guess what happens? That stuff that builds up in my heart. I think I'm getting away with it. But soon this shame and this guilt begins to crop back up. And I begin to tell myself the story all over again. I deceive myself. Hebrews chapter 12, if you're in our quiet time journal, I really encourage people to read the word of God for themselves, to read the Bible. And we offer that journal to you. The two weeks ago, I think it was, this was the passage, Hebrews chapter 12 and the verses around it. And I just read this and I said, oh my goodness, this is what is, this is this process. See to it that no one misses the grace of God. And I mean, this is just cool. See to it that you, that I, that no one misses the grace. Code, see to it that we understand that it's God who works in us. It's his grace and his mercy. And that no bitter root grows up to cause trouble and what? Defile many. You know what's interesting to me? If I've got a problem with one of you, and I don't give you the grace that God gives you, And I look at you with judgment and harshness and I don't deal with it. I don't ever stop and look at my heart and say, goodness, Adam, why do you treat them like that? Why do you have those feelings? What is it about your heart? If I don't do that and I begin to push stuff down in, it defiles. What's the final word? Soon I'm at home yelling at my wife and I don't even know why. I don't have a problem with my wife. It's the guy at church that I had to interact with. Or soon I'm giving the baseball coach an earful. Why? Because it's, the person at church I had a problem with and what ends up is we push this stuff down in and it works its way out. It's, it's interesting. I was with a pastor recently who served here in Lancaster County for over 16 years. And he's in, he's a brilliant man. And uh, he's actually someone we're hoping to bring for our verve uh, time next year. And I was sitting with him and he says, you know, what's so interesting about this Lancaster County culture Because I've been around the world, I've been a missionary all over, I've lived in Southern California, and the one thing that's so unique about this Lancaster area more than any other is this principle right here. It's a passive-aggressive culture. It's a group of people who generally pick the rug up, push the problems under, shove it down in, and then lay the rug back down and think, man, it's all good. And they never stop and really address the reality of why am I ticked off? Why does this make me so mad? Why do I feel so irritated right now? And uh oh, well, it's the good Christian thing to do is just to move on. And then he says to me, You know what you see happen, Adam? Is you see that powder keg boils down in here, and it soon blows up with abuse towards kids, spouses, bosses, coworkers, and it's ugly. He says, stop and take moral inventory, do the hard work. At some point, I think we need to stop blaming, take 100% responsibility, stop cramming, stop stuffing, and do what the scriptures call guard our hearts. What we do with our kids, I got this from a pastor named Andy Stanley. He's down in Atlanta, Georgia. One of the things we do with our kids is oh, I'm, I am so fearful as a parent that I am going to do what I see so many people in our culture do, and that's simply behavioral modification. Sure, I want my kids to be good kids. I want my kids to respect their teachers. I want my kids to obey the rules. But at the end of the day, that's not all I care about. I care about their heart. So how do we discipline a child to the point where we don't just worry about the behavior they violated, but we worry about their heart? So Andy Stanley shared this thing that we've adopted in our home. We don't do it every night, but one of the things we've got good at doing is this, he says, you come and you lay your hand. i do this, lay my hand on my kid's heart. And I just say to him, Luke, Zach, Eden, Ava's still a little too young for this. What's on your heart? How's your heart doing? Now, a lot of times a kid, especially my age, has no clue how, what's that mean, dad? Well, how's my heart doing? But you know what they do know how to answer? I want to know the emotions that are in there. Is there anything that really makes you happy right now? What really gets you excited? Is there anything that you're really upset at? Is there anyone that made you mad today? Is there anything that really angers you? Is there anything that you're worried about? Is there anything that you're... And someone came up to me after first service and shared another great one. And this is a great one. It gets to this. What is it that you're most looking forward to tomorrow? I want to see what's in here. And I want to help my kids begin to deal with what's in here and be honest. And if there's stuff in there that they're ticked off at, if there's anger and frustration and and some of that negative stuff, I want them to say, hey, it's a safe thing to do to bring that out, look in the mirror and take it to Jesus and say, this is who I am and this is what's going on and realize that I'm forgiven much and that I can love much. But if I'm never honest with what's in here, I'm never going to experience it. I want to end um, with one passage. I'd love for you guys actually to see this for yourself. If you turn with me to 2 Corinthians chapter 8. It's going to be real quick, just one verse here. Two couple verses, 2 Corinthians chapter 8. If you're not familiar with your Bible, you're going to see 2 Corinthians towards the very back. You're going to see 1 Corinthians and you're going to see 2 Corinthians As you're turning there, one of the things I think it's really helpful for us to do is to just sit down and do this heart activity and guard our hearts and and do this moral inventory and be purposeful about it and ask questions like, you know, things that we don't always think about, but the stuff that gets lodged down in there, things like some of us are racist, but have never recovered. We've got racist stuff down. there. I mean, just the other day at J.B. Zimmerman, I heard a horrible racist statement made towards our president. Terrible statement. You know, some of us have grown up in that environment and that has influenced us. And we know, and oh, it's not good to be racist, but we've never dealt with the heart of it and dealt with, and we just shove it down in there. But at the end of the day, I don't like people that aren't my race. Some of us don't like poor people, never been honest with it. Some of us don't like rich people and never been honest about it. Some of us don't like gay people. And then we use our Christianity to support our disdain for them. And we're not honest about it. Some of us have events in our past that we feel really bad about and we've never fully embraced. And everyone, we've listened to everyone in life has given us a story as to why that event is so traumatic. Maybe it was your mom or maybe you were only 15 when it happened or maybe your personality and we listen to all this stuff. But at the end of the day, God loves you and he wants to handle that guilt and shame. Some of us have legally dodged a child. Some of us in in this room and in this church and in this culture here have split up a home. Maybe you aren't physically divorced, but you might as well be because you're spending all your time pointing your finger at the other spouse. And maybe other spouse has really done something egregious. Maybe they've done something that is flat out ugly. But I promise you, you will never heal if you don't stop and own your own stuff. It's a fine line between acknowledging being sinned against and blaming your sin on another person. Some of us have injured someone and never dealt with it. Some of us have dropped out of school and never been honest with why we dropped out. What's the real reason I'm unemployed? Let's be honest about that. What's the real reason I'm selling my house? What's the real reason Adam Nagel went to Charlotte, North Carolina? I didn't see it at first. I found it leaving. I went down to chase my own ego and my own dreams. I wish I could have been honest about that. When I left, I probably would have never gone. What's the real reason I'm getting a new job? What's the real reason I'm leaving this job? What's the real reason that I married him or her? What's the real reason I'm dating him or her? What's the real reason I start each day with a drink? What's the real reason I'm not real generous with my money? I need to go on and on and on with the reality of I need to guard this in here. 2 Corinthians chapter 8, look down at verse 8. So we're going to kind of just cement the whole series in our hearts and minds with this, these verses. 2 Corinthians chapter 8, it's a story about giving. It's a statement about giving, giving money. Verse 8, it says, I'm not commanding you. He's talking to the church at Corinth. He's talking to a church that's very much like our American church. It's a sexualized church. It's a church full of lawsuits. It's a church that has just got so many of our issues that we have in America. It says, I'm not commanding you to give, but I want to test the sincerity of your Love. Now, this is important to me because I'm reading this before we read the verses before it. Because we read the verses before it, please know and understand that what he is giving them an example of is sincere, genuine, real love. So I want you to test the sincerity of your love by comparing it with the earnestness of others. Then he gives this cool statement. Not only compare it to the others that we're going to look at in verses 1 to 8, but compare it to Jesus. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ that though he was what? He was rich. He was loaded. He was the king of kings and lord of lords. He created and made you. He created and made this world. He says, but he, look what it says. Though he was rich, yet for your sake, Romans chapter 5 comes to mind, while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. He moved in our direction. For our sake, he became poor so that you, through his poverty, might become what? Rich. Spiritually rich. Now, jump up to the story. Verse 1. And now, brothers, we want you to know about the grace that God has given the Macedonian churches. Now, the Macedonian churches, compared to the Corinthian churches, are poor, abused, hard pressed areas. These are not rich churches. The Macedonian churches are struggling, they're beat down, they've kicked around, they've had a hard time at life. The Corinthian churches are rich and living fat and high and happy on the hog. Verse 2, out of the most severe trial. Now, again, this is no understatement. The most severe trial. I think what the hardest thing you could imagine, and Paul is describing, that is what these churches have been through. Severe trial. Their overflowing what? Joy. And their extreme, what is this? Look at the word. They're overflowing joy and extreme. It's not just a little poverty, extreme poverty welled up in rich, what? Generosity. For I testify that they, this poor, little, beat-down church, I testify that they gave as much as they were able. And even, they didn't just give what they were able. They didn't just give their 10%. They went above and beyond their ability. And they lavished us with gifts to further the kingdom of God. They went beyond their ability. Entirely on their own. Remember, Paul calls this down in verses 8 and 9, sincere, genuine love. Now look at verse 4. Verse 4, I have never in my life heard of a pastor describe an event like this. They urgently did what? Pleaded with us. They urgently pleaded with us for the privilege of sharing in this service to the saints. You know what he's saying? Here's how this would look in modern day times. I say, Amen. We finished the message. We finished the service. And one of you runs up to me and says, Adam, don't stop yet. Don't stop. We need to give a little more money. I say, no, no, no. We already, we already did our offering. Let's let's, we'll save it for next week. No, Adam, please, please. We urge you take more from us. That's what he's saying. That's what this church did. I can't get my head around that. I mean, I really struggle Think, my goodness, I've never could even imagine that happening in an American church. Most of us are going, oh my goodness, here comes the plate again. They urgently pleaded with us for the privilege of sharing in this service to the saints. Now here comes the key. And they did not do as we expected, but they gave themselves first to who? They gave themselves first to the Lord and then to us in keeping with God's will. A guy by the name of John Piper, the pastor that's influenced me. He's retiring right now out in Minnesota. Uh, Here's what he said coming out of this passage. He says this. It's a definition of love that I've always held to. Love is the overflow of joy in God. They had an unbelievable joy in God. They are forgiven much, therefore they love much. Love is the overflow of joy in God that gladly, happily, excitedly, urgently, I mean, they beg to do it, that gladly meets the needs of others. Forgiven much, loves much. When I understand, I may be beat down. I may be suffering. I may have had a really hard time at life. But when I understand, as this Macedonian poor little church understands, that I am forgiven much. Like that sinful woman there wiping Jesus' feet. I am forgiven much. The natural result is I love much. So if I want to love much, if I want to make a difference in this world, I need to come back to the place where I take that moral inventory. I look at myself in the mirror and I say, Adam, who are you? What's really on your heart? Why did you really talk to your kids like that? Why did you really leave Mifflin County to go to Charlotte? Why did you really, and, in, and Adam, when you felt that way, that interaction with your spouse, why did you feel that way? Let's be honest, Adam. Let's own the reality that I, as Jeremiah says, my heart is wicked. and Without Jesus, I am lost and it's over. I have been forgiven so much. Not that thousand dollar debt, but a million dollar debt. And it overflows with this radical love. As we end... Excuse me, as we end this, I want to do something here this morning that we've been talking about the last couple of weeks. Uh, Free, we haven't talked about it near as much as I think we should have. Um, but we're going to end with some special music. And the music's going to happen. It's going to be some kids are going to come up and they're going to sing and it's going to be really cool. And I'm I'm looking, uh, it was great in first service, but here's the reality with kids. They're going to sing a song called Open Hands. And the song goes, has some incredible lyrics. It really captures the heart of this message and this whole series. It says, to give unselfishly, to love the least of these, learning how to live with open hands. All these treasures will never satisfy. I lay them at your throne. Learning to live life with open hands. Learning to say, you know what? What's come in? to my hands does not belong to me but it's given to me to give out and further the kingdom of god so i want us to challenge us to, as we listen to kids i love kids jesus puts kids before us all the time to say that is genuine real faith live with faith like a child as we do that then um and we do just begin to think through and process this hey how's my heart uh, then we're going to test ourselves with an offering uh, that's going to be an addition to our offering. And there's an envelope in your um, in your bulletin. There's an envelope there with uh, for Victory Church. And what we're going to do is we're take, we kind of modeled this out of 2 Corinthians eight. It's the it's the little guy given to the big guy. The Macedonian church given to the church in Jerusalem, given to Paul's ministry. It's saying we want to be we want to be a competitive church. We want to be a church that's about the advancement of the kingdom of God. And there's a church in our county that thinks it's so cool. I applaud us to death. Less than six years have gone by, and this church has paid down over a million dollar debt on the mortgage of this building. That is unreal. Unreal. Our mortgage right now is less than some of our home mortgages are. We're almost there. It's almost done. And Victory Church, the guy's rich, one of their elders stood here a few weeks ago and says, he looks around here and he says, Man, we would give anything to have this. We'd give anything. They don't even have a building. But I look at what Victory Church and the heart of them, and it's what we want to challenge ourselves with. We want to say, let's be involved with furthering the kingdom of God. We're not competitive, it's not our money. So the challenge has been, let's give to another church. Let's let the little guy give to the big guy. They're a church that's four times our size. They're a church that's, that's it's, again, it's exciting to see people come to know Jesus. I just want to, again, challenge us to give. I would love to give them four to $5,000. All it would take for the, our attendance, our average weekly attendance, each of us give 10 or so bucks. And we would hit that number in a hurry. Um, but, again, I want to bless them with that and end this whole series by saying, let's give generously to the kingdom of God and see it furthered right here in our backyard. Uh, So let me pray for us. They're going to come out and sing. I want you to, again, think and reflect and process. uh, And then uh, we're going to take that offering and wrap up this morning in this whole series. God, thank you so much for Jesus. I am uh, moved to think of that story in Luke chapter 7. You have a woman who comes and weeps at your feet, washes your feet. You have some religious leaders there who are... On the outside, we'd look at them and say, man, we'd want to be like them. They're good people. But God, at the end of the day, you understand something about every one of us. And that is without Jesus, we are so far from you. So God, I pray as we reflect on that and think about that reality, without Jesus, we are so far from you. We've got a million-dollar debt. We can't pay that. We think we can, we work hard, we're good people. But God, at the end of the day, we've got that debt load. At the end of the day, you realize that. At the end of the day, you look down and you saw beautiful people created in your image, but yet they had a problem. It's called sin. And you said, you know what? I want to redeem them. So you moved in our direction and you offered us forgiveness. And God, the Bible teaches in Luke chapter 7, taught that when we understand and really grasp as Christian people what it means to be forgiven, the natural response is to love much. So help us to be a church that loves deep. Help us to be a church that is so wildly generous with our love and care and our money towards people and advancing your kingdom that it just blows the socks off our community and other people around us as they look in. God, I also pray for those here this morning that have wandered in, maybe at the invitation of a friend or a neighbor or a family member, maybe just, hey, check this out because they... Uh, saw our website or whatever other reason. God, I I pray for the person who's here that maybe is far from you right now and feels they've been questioning you, struggling with you. God, it would be so cool this morning to just, again, for that person to say, hey, right, I am such a sinner and I can't do this life. I've been trying. And here this Jesus is, and he says, just come to me and find rest. Is that all I got to do? Yes, that's all they got to do. Got to be so cool to see some people walk into relationship with Jesus for the very first time this morning, understanding what they have been forgiven. So God, I pray for that. I pray for the rest of us too sitting here that, that know and love you. pray that we'd be challenged to do surgery in our heart and do the fearless moral inventory and stop shelving and sh- stuffing stuff down in or under the rug, but really face the reality of who we are and then bring it to you. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen.